Thank you to our praise team. It is great to see everybody today. So glad that you're here. So that, glad that you joined us for worship. Um, we've been in a series traveling through looking at the life of Joseph over the past good while. And today we come to the close of that series. So we'll wrap up Genesis chapter 50. Our text comes from verses 24 and 20 through 26, literally the last verses of the book of Genesis. And I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 through 26. Here we are at the end of Joseph's life. Let's read together, beginning at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to come back to those verses in just a little while, but I want to go to some of the stuff that takes place in this particular narrative of the text and then leads up into what we just read. So let's go back just a few verses to actually the death of Jacob. In the end of Genesis, there's a section there where it covers both the deaths of Jacob and of Joseph. So let's take a look at, first of all, the death of Jacob, Joseph's father. Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 29, it says, Then Joseph, Jacob's father, commanded them, that is Joseph and his brothers, then he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. So Jacob is announcing to his sons that I'm about ready to die. I feel like I'm at the end of my life. I feel my life fading from me. And, I've, I've, and so I've got some instructions for you boys. Um, now he's addressing the whole family. He says in verse 29, I'm about to be gathered to my people. And then he makes this request to them. He says, I want for you to bury me with my fathers. Jacob did not want to be buried in Egypt. Jacob, that was not his homeland. This is not where Jacob was from. Even though he and his family had come to Egypt, God had preserved their life through this famine. Joseph had become the prime minister of this land and they had welcomed Jacob and his family in. Jacob did not want to be buried in Egypt. His home was back in the promised land in the land of Canaan. And so uh, instead of being buried in Egyptian soil, um, he wanted his brother, his his sons to lay him to rest back home. Now it's more specific than that. He says, end of verse 29, he says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, verse 30, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought or bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Let me show you where this is at on a map. If you take a look at our map, there's a little uh, spot there on the, on the map and it says Hebron. Uh, you may have wondered, I've heard of Hebron before, and I knew that it had something to do with the Bible, but it actually is a city in ancient Israel, um, and you can see it there on the map. It's kind of due west of the middle of the Dead Sea. Um, and so that's the location that uh, Jacob is talking about. When Abraham's wife Sarah died, great-grandfather Abraham bought a field from a guy named Ephron who was a Hittite. That's what this text reveals to us. And part of this field contained a cave. It was the cave at Machpelah. So he buys a field. He knows that there's a, uh, a landmark there, this cave, and it's a place where he can have a burial site. And so that's why he buys this field for the, sec for the cave, for the burial site. And so Abraham buried his wife Sarah in that cave. And then when Abraham died, he left instructions for his own bones to be laid to rest right there alongside of his his wife Sarah in the cave at Machpelah. Next generation. Grandfather Isaac comes along. When grandfather Isaac died, he made the same request that he and his wife Rachel would be buried in that cave alongside of his father Abraham. So now we've got two generations of Abraham's family that have been buried in this cave at Machpelah. 
uh, down to verse 31. There's another addition to the, to the cave. There's been uh, uh, verse 31. It says, Jacob says, there they buried Abraham and Sarah. So he's talking to uh, his sons here, and he's reporting to them about the family history and the family burial plot. He says, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried... So Jacob is speaking here in the present tense, there I buried uh, my, my first wife who preceded me in death. And so Jacob is saying, when I die here very shortly, guys, I'm about to close out this life. I'm about to close my eyes for the very last time. When that happens, I want for you to go and bury my, my remains, my body, and lay it there next to my wife Leah. So verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So Jacob dies. And his last request, again, is that they take his bones and that they take them to the cave where Abraham is buried, where Sarah is buried, where, Jacob, where Isaac is buried, and where, his, where Jacob's own wife, uh, Leah, is buried. And he wants for his remains to be there. Let me show you a couple of pictures here. This is some of the modern day... Uh, it, where, where this cave at Machpella is. And you can see there, um, before I get into the picture, you can take a look at the pictures, but before I get into that, let's remember that these pictures are at the intersection of three of the world's great religions. So this, this picture represents a spot where both Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all intersect, all come together. Um, what you're looking at are fortified walls around the family cemetery that Herod the Great built back in the first century. 2,000 years ago, he built these walls, and so they're still standing today. I think that's pretty neat. And then during the rise of Islam in the 600s AD, the Muslims claimed the site as one of their holy sites, as the fourth most holy site in all of Islam. And so and doing that, they built a mosque on top of it. And then in the 12th century, the Crusaders came along and they ran the Muslims out and they added to the structure and they beautified it in their own way. And then Saladin came along with the Muslims again, not that long after that, and he recaptured the site and tweaked it to their liking. So some of the interior pictures that you see look like a mosque. Uh, there's also, if you were to get into the architecture of it, you'd see some of the, uh, the influence of the Crusaders, all that sort of thing. But today the site is split between the Jews and the Muslims. They both uh, hold some control of this site. But again, it was walled up to try to protect the area by Herod the Great because it was such a sacred and holy site and to preserve it. And then again, the Muslims came in and built the, uh, the mosque that is now on top of the cave at Machpelah. So what you're looking at there is the spot where Abraham's bones are. It's the spot where Isaac's bones are. It's the spot where Jacob's bones are and their wives. Back to our text, end of verse 5. So Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he asks permission to bury his father. He says, let me please go up and bury my father and then I'll return. Pharaoh thought this was a really good idea. Pharaoh said, he was, he was overjoyed that, Jacob would want, or that Joseph would want to honor his father Jacob in this way. But not only does Pharaoh allow Joseph to go, he also equips Joseph and his family as they're going to make this journey from Egypt up to Hebron. Um, and he's going to equip them with soldiers for their protection and with a bunch of wagons for provisions. Verse 7, it says, So Joseph went up to bury his father. He went up with him, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of Pharaoh's household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph. So not only do the soldiers go, not only do the wagons and the supplies go, but also a whole bunch of dignitaries. It says elders from the house of Pharaoh. It says elders from across the land of Egypt. People held Joseph in such high esteem that they wanted to go and pay their respect to Joseph, the death of Joseph's father, to show Joseph their respect. And so they've got this massive caravan of people with all the servants. I mean, it was quite a procession. It had all the pomp and all the circumstance that you can imagine and that you would expect, all the creature comforts that you would expect expect this group would want on a journey of this sort. 
And then if we were to dig into these verses even further, we would discover that Joseph takes a very circuitous route to get to Hebron. If you take, well, let's go back to our map for just a moment. Um, they traveled from Egypt into this region, and the shortest route for them to go would just been cut straight across the desert and land at Hebron. But instead, they go far to the east around the Dead Sea, to the eastern side of the Dead Sea. They go up along, skirt along the shoreline of the Dead Sea to the northern tip and cross the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea and then come down to Hebron from there. So they took a very, very much longer route than what was really necessary. And I don't want to overreach this morning. I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but I couldn't help but notice as I was working through this passage that this is the same path that Moses and the Israelites would take on their way out of Egypt. I thought it was just uh, foreshadowing, if you would, as the book of Genesis closes out and then Exodus opens up 400 years later with Moses about ready to take this exact same journey that Joseph and his family had just taken. Um, but I'll leave that to you and to the biblical scholars to debate. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. One might think with all that pomp and with all that circumstance and with all of that history, with all that heritage and the family burial plot being there, that when Joseph dies he would want the same treatment. Now, maybe he doesn't want the procession and all the pomp and the circumstance, but at least carry my bones to that cave, right? We've gone through all of this. Grand, my father's buried there. My grandfather's buried there. My great-grandfather's buried there. My grandmother's all the way back through. They're all buried there. You would think that Joseph would want his bones to have the same, um, same expectation. Look at verse 24. It's what we read at the beginning. It says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Um, you say, well, how much time has gone by since when Joseph says, I'm about to die, and when his father Jacob died? Well, one expert believes that it's been about 56 years. Been about 56 years. Uh, we know that Joseph in these verses lived to be 110 years old, and one expert kind of calculated, and he figured that Joseph was 54 when his father Jacob died, and that 56 years has transpired. He's 110 when he dies. So that's about how much time has elapsed in the biblical text. So Joseph is at this point, he says, I'm about to die. And notice that he says that this to some of his brothers. Remember, Joseph is one of the, he's the second to the youngest, but he's talking to his brothers here. He's talking to his older brothers. And he says to his older, so we don't know if all of his older brothers are still living or if this is just some of his older brothers, but nevertheless, Joseph preceded some, at least some of his brothers in death. And so Joseph's final statements, his final request, like his dad, uh, verse 24 says, But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Verse 26, So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in the caves at Machpelah alongside his father Jacob. No not what it says, is it? They put him in the, in, in, in the land of Hebron, and that's where Jacob, Joseph's bones were buried? No, that's not what it says. The text says that Joseph, they put him in a coffin in Egypt. They held him, his bones back from being buried in the land where he was from. You say, Gordon, why did he do that? Well, for the reason that he just stated back in verse 24. He said to his brothers, verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. In other words, we are going to get out of here, fellas, and I'm leaving my bones in your care and in the care of our generations to come as a reminder to them that God is going to keep his promise, that he is going to deliver us from this land of Egypt and return us to the land of our home. 
that is to the promised land. So Joseph had every expectation. Please don't miss this. He had every expectation that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to return to the land of his forefathers. And his confidence was so much so that he instructs his kin to embalm him, to set his bones in a coffin in Egypt, and there his remains will stay with them until that day when they are delivered from their from their, uh, their captors. Now, I would point out that this was not just wishful thinking, okay, on Joseph's part. He wasn't just hoping that this would be the case. He wasn't just leaving his bones back there, anticipating that maybe, his, maybe this would happen. Joseph believed that this was going to happen because of what God had said in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. That God had told his great-grandfather Abraham, it says in verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. I love certainty, don't you? The Bible says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, referring to Egypt, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. Joseph left his bones behind because he believed the promise that God had made him. He believed the promise that God had made his dad. He believed the promise that he had made his grandfather, that he had made his great-grandfather, that these people, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, the people of God, would one day be delivered from their captivity and return to their homeland. All right. Well, that's our text for today, and so that means it's time to stop and ask the question. We ask every week around here, you know I'm fond of it, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the walk through Abraham Cemetery this morning, but I'm really not in the market for one of those today. Uh, what difference does any of this make <clears throat> to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Flip over with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, it kind of wraps this whole story up. Exodus chapter 13. Uh, you can follow along with me on the screen as well. Uh, we're jumping forward. When we get to Exodus chapter 13, we're jumping forward 400 years into the future from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. Moses is now the leader. Uh, Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner have now come out and battled one another, right? And so they're doing all this. And so we're jumping forward 400 years to the time of Moses. The Israelites are busily packing their things. The 10 plagues have come. Um, and it's the night before they're getting ready to leave the promised land. The Egyptians have said, get out. We don't want you here anymore. Y'all leave. Go back to your promised land. And so <clears throat> Exodus chapter 13 to verse 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph. You see, the bones of Joseph had been held onto by his people, just like he had asked that they, had not, that, they had, that they would not bury him, that they would retain them in a coffin in Egypt for the day when they would march out of there and carry that coffin, carry Joseph's bones to the land of his forefathers. <clears throat> and these had become a national monument of sorts. It was that it it was that reminder that Joseph had wanted them to have. And when the Israelites got ready to go for, think about that, 400 years later. Think about the course of time. Something that a group of people had held on to for 400 years. I mean, generations. We're talking about with a, a long generations, right? Plural, lots of people have come and gone. And they've been hanging on to these bones. They had served as a national monument, a reminder to the people of Israel that God made us this promise that God is going to come through on his promise. And so uh, when the Israelites got ready to go, item number one on their packing list were the bones of Joseph. I love that. I love that in that story. Now here's my question to you and I today. What legacy are you leaving with your children 
and your grandchildren today that will point future generations to the God you serve? What legacy are you leaving with your children and your grandchildren today that when they think about you, and you're, you're long gone, or generations have, have come and gone, and they think about you, and they think about your family history and the heritage of your family history, what markers would you put in your family's life that would call them back to the God that you serve? Well, I've got, uh, so in other words, how can we build a family legacy? And so I've got two of those for you. Um, there's a, oof, this was a tough one to, to come up with this week because there's so many things I'm thinking about and I'm trying to sift through it. Like, what, what would, what are the markers that would stay with my family generation upon generation upon generation? And so I've, you can, I'm sure you can name more than this, but I've got two for you here. So here, here we go. Uh, the first thing that you can do to create a family legacy is to build into your children and to build into your grandchildren the habit of regular church attendance. You say, Gordon, that is so self-serving. <laughs> and it may be, but friends, I know the importance of this, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but let's make sure that we're all up to speed on why church attendance is so important. First of all, I want to make the statement that church attendance is not a moral issue, okay? It's not a moral issue. Like if you miss church, you have not violated the moral law of God. Um, there were three aspects to the Jewish law and the laws of Moses, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. So get those, civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. The civil law were the laws that governed the Israelites as a people, like social contracts that dealt with marriage or, or, or legal contracts that dealt with land disputes or land changing hands, or in the situation where maybe somebody has stolen from you, how, what kind of restitution are you going to get for that? And so that was the civil law that governed them as a nation, the nation of Israel. And then there was the ceremonial law, and these were the rules regarding festivals and feast days and sacrifices that you would make at the temple and worship and the date and the times and the manner of those sacrifices. And so those were all the ceremonial aspects of the law. And then there's the moral law. We're very familiar with that. We think about thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not steal or do not bear false witness. And when we get to the New Testament, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, two aspects of the laws of Moses are no longer binding on us today. Perhaps you've been in a conversation with somebody who said to you, well, that's just Old Testament stuff that you're talking about. Uh, that person's just not informed. They're just ignorant of how the Jewish law works and what Jesus came and fulfilled. When we get to the New Testament again, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, two aspects of the law of Moses are no longer binding on us today. That's the civil law and the ceremonial law. The people of God are no longer limited to the nation of Israel, so the gospel goes out beyond the nation, beyond the, the, the boundaries of national Israel. And because of that, there are nations that the people who follow Christ will live under, and those nations will have laws of their own. And so the civil law, the civil aspect of the laws of Moses are no longer binding. But the, and then there's the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled those. That's what the writer of Hebrews was so forcefully trying to explain, that Jesus was the blood that was shed once and for all. No longer do we have to observe uh, sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats and rams. Those things were only a temporary fix for man's sin problem. Ga Jesus came, gave his life, shed his blood once and for all, and there's no more sacrifices that are needed to be made. He completely fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the law. But when it comes to the moral law of God, friends, every moral law in the Old Testament is repeated again in the New. Every, law, every moral law in the Old Testament is repeated again in the New Testament. Um, and so because of that, it's still binding on us today. In fact, uh, concerning church attendance, church attendance 
is, nor, ever, nor was it ever a moral law. It was a ceremonial aspect of the law. It dealt with the Sabbath. I and mean, this is why Jesus could tell his disciples to go and glean in the field on the Sabbath day, and he was not asking them to sin because they were not violating a moral law of God. And it's for this reason um, that Jesus also healed a woman on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come running to him. They're like, hey, how can you heal somebody on the Sabbath? And uh, it's not that Jesus is saying, well, one thing's better than the other. Jesus isn't going to violate the moral law of God. It's because of what he was doing was a ceremonial aspect of the law. It wasn't a moral law of God. Um, and so because of that, church attendance is not a moral law. You follow me? It's a ceremonial law. And so when you don't attend church or if you have to work on Sunday, you're not violating a moral law of God. You say, well, then why come to church, right? I mean, why not just kind of check out, lay out, you know, be gone for weeks on end, be gone for months on end? Well, it's because Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Friends, I have never known anyone I have never known anyone who has a deep and personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ apart from regular involvement with a local body of Christ. I have yet to meet that person. I have met many people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who call him uh, as, by, as their Lord, who are Christians, who are not in regular church attendance. But I have never met someone who is in deep, intimate, personal relationship with their Savior apart from regular church involvement. Um, one of our church members uh, years past ago used to say, I had a drug problem growing up. My parents drug me to church every Sunday. <laughs> now, he wasn't saying that to spurn the fact that his mom and dad made him go to church. He was saying that as a recognition of gratitude to his mom and dad. I mean, this guy was much older at the time when he said that. He was saying that as a statement of gratitude to his mom and dad that they built that habit into my life of regular church attendance and involvement in the lives of other believers. And many of us here today were raised that way. It's part of why we are still in church today because our parents built the habit into us. Let me ask you something, moms and dads. Do you want your children to be in church with their own families every Sunday? It's a question. Is that what you want to see 20 years from now, 40 years from now, that your children are just like you today, sitting here in church, a part of a local body of Christ? <clears throat> you say, well, of course I do. I want my children to be plugged in with other believers. I want my grandchildren to grow up in church, to grow up to know the Lord. Then model for them the habits that you want to see future generations observe. Friends, a legacy does not start after you are dead and gone. A legacy starts in what you are doing right now, today. Build that habit into your children of regular church attendance. Model for them what you want to see future generations of your family doing. Number two, second way to build a legacy is to tell the story of your family's history. To tell the story of your family's history. I know for me, one of the guiding forces of my life was to know how deeply my grandparents and my great-grandparents loved and followed the Lord. I would hear those stories as a kid about my grandfather out at 
you know, church camp in the summer times and how he would just get blessed and he would, he would just, just love the Lord and would just praise the Lord. And I just remember that story and it just became a fiber of who I was and, and how I thought and approached things. I saw myself as an extension of that family legacy. For some of you, farming is in your family's history. For others of you, it's a love for fishing and hunting or travel. Are you passing those passions to future generations along? Are you taking your kids on the trips? Are you taking your kids to the deer stand, telling them the stories of when you did those things with your dad and with your grandfather? You know, one of the things I loved to do when I was a kid was to listen to the stories of my mom and dad talking about when they were growing up as kids. My mom grew up on a farm out in the middle of nowhere um, in Maryland, and she would talk about how they they butchered their own meat, right? And so she talked about how they chopped the heads off the chicken, and the chicken would run around the, the yard with his head chopped off. He said, I didn't know they could do that. I didn't know it could either until my mom told me the story about how they used to do that. Um, and I used to love those stories. Those were, those were, um, those were so, so important to me, and it connected me with the legacy of my family. My dad grew up on an island in the Chesapeake Bay, and he'd tell stories of running around eating oysters and crab meat in the summer times and sneaking down to the neighbor's house to watch TV through the window because nobody else on the island had TV, and you weren't supposed to watch TV, so they'd look through the window of the neighbor's house to watch TV. And again, it was and how they had an outhouse out back. It was a two-seater. Uh, wonderful stories, otherworldly stories. Stories, stories that connected me to generations that came before me. Some of you grew up around here and you've heard the stories of people picking cotton in the summer times and how they used to sweep their front yards because nobody wanted grass in their front yards. I don't know what the deal was with that. Maybe nobody had lawnmowers. Um, how there were trails that ran all through the woods here <clears throat> and you pick wild blackberries in the summertime. Friends, those stories are priceless. Priceless. What a tragedy it would be for future generations not to know the life and the legacy of their family history. Creating that connection to the past by continuing the traditions and telling the stories to the present generation. One of my most favorite memories with my own kids is when I tuck them in bed at night and they would say, Daddy, tell us a story. And I would always begin when I was a little boy. And we would just sit there and I'd tell them little stories about me growing up. And I would spin yarn after yarn, night after night, of stories from my own childhood. Moms and dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles, tell the stories of your family to your children. Build your legacy. Remember, a legacy is not built after we are dead and gone. It is built by what we do with our children and our grandchildren right now and the days that we have with them. Um, I have struggled this week, I'll just be honest with you. I have struggled with this sermon and knowing how to close things out. And I've been praying all week and asking God, how, how do you want us to hear this? How do you want us to receive this? Or does your Holy Spirit want to minister to us in some unique and significant way this morning with this material that you put in front of us, Lord? Um, because I know, I know that our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews are so precious to us. And we want to see them go on to follow the Lord and to flourish and to follow their dreams. And so I just want to take a few moments this morning to close things out in a little bit different way by ministering to you. We're going to share a time of communion where we remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. And after our communion, usually we stand and we close out with a song. I'm going to ask for you just to remain seated where you are all the way through to the very end of the service today. And... Uh, 
I'm going to ask you just to spend some time in quiet reflection and prayer. The guys are going to come up here. They're going to sing. Uh, the words won't be on the screen behind us. If you want to sing along, you're welcome to. If you just want to worship the Lord where you're seated, you're welcome to. We also want to invite you to come up and take a knee here up at the front. If you just want to come and just spend some time before the Lord today, we invite you to do that. Um, so you just listen to God, you listen to His Holy Spirit, and you respond as He speaks. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are who we are today, many of us, because there have been those who have gone on before us who have taught us about Jesus, our Savior, who have read us the stories from this, your holy word, who have built into us a solid work ethic, a love for a neighbor, Lord, we ask that you would take this space this morning as we remember, Lord Jesus, your broken body and your shed blood, which makes all these things possible. And Lord, that you would just minister to our hearts this morning. Give moms and dads a fresh vision for how they want to structure their days with their children. Give grandparents enthusiasm for the stories of old. Lord, speak to our hearts today. We invite you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.